Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. This is another special Wednesday morning episode brought to you by our new sponsor, Jeremy Clevenger Fitness, who we featured on episode 145. If you haven't heard that episode yet, I encourage you to go back and take a listen. I have another great show lined up for you, but before we get started, I just wanted to remind you to take a look at the leadership books on my website. Now, Harry Truman famously once said, not all readers are leaders, but all leaders are readers. So if you're not reading leadership books today, I highly encourage you to get started. I've written three leadership books, and I recommend you start with I Have the Watch First. It's filled with 22 short stories that will help you become a leader worth following. It's a quick read, and most people finish it in less than three hours. It's also available in Kindle and on Audible, so you can listen in your car or while you're working out. And a Spanish version is also in the works. So check out all my books either on Amazon or my website, johnsrenny.com. Also, I just wanted to remind you that Deep Leadership is now ranked in the top 2.5% most popular shows out of 3 million podcasts globally, according to Listen Score. We're also closing in on the top 100 management podcasts in the U.S. So I wanted to thank each and every one of you for listening every week and sharing these episodes with your friends. You have helped this podcast grow into a top performing show. So thank you very much. Well, that's it. Today, we're going to be talking about building resilience. My guest is Dr. Deborah Gilboa. She has spent more than 10 years researching how people can better cope with stress and better handle change. She's putting her findings in a new book called From Stressed to Resilient, The Guide to Handle More and Feel It Less. Now, this was an encouraging conversation that everyone needs to hear, especially after what we've been through in the past three years. So are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Gilboa. Deborah is a medical doctor, author, resilience expert, and keynote speaker. She is the author of a new book called From Stressed to Resilient, The Guide to Handle More and Feel It Less. In this book, she helps readers strengthen their ability to cope with stress 
and learn to be happy in the face of change. Now, given all the change that we've experienced in the past few years, I am excited to have her on the show to learn from her research. So, Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. It's good to meet you. And uh, my first question to you is like, how do you go from medical doctor to resilience expert? Where where did that, uh, what, what caused you to go and spend 10 years to research the idea of resilience? My patients, actually, I still practice clinically. And after, and maybe you can relate to this, John, after I'd been doing my job for about five years, I started to feel confident in my job. You know, so after I'd finished residency and all of my training and I'd been practicing for about five years, I started to think, okay, I do feel like I mostly know what I'm doing. I know the right questions to ask. I know how to find things out when I don't know what to do next. And then I started to look more globally at the experience my patients were having. And I realized that in medical school, I had been trained to help people recover from illness and injury and prevent illness and injury, but I hadn't learned how to help people get as well as they wanted to be. Mm. So I did what I had been trained to do. I looked in the medical literature and that gap was described as patient resilience, Ah. which I grant you sounds very much like a cop-out on the part of the medical field. Like, oh, well, we did our part. The rest is on you. But I thought, okay, Let's take that for a minute as the possibility that's true. What does that mean? What is individual resilience? And at the time, and this is maybe 15 years ago, most of the research around resilience was done in combat veterans with PTSD and separately in patients with severe mental illness. And that is interesting, but not generally applicable to some of my patients. I see a lot of refugees and immigrants and absolutely PTSD can play a big role in many of my patients, but it didn't define most of them. Mm. And I wanted to know if resilience makes a difference. And there's a lot of research to show that it does. And by difference, I mean the difference between one morning. In one morning, I saw a patient who was in her mid-50s, Caucasian woman, college-educated, middle-class, socioeconomically, and she had progressive MS. Um, This is a rare subtype of multiple sclerosis where however bad things get with a flare, that's your new normal. Like you Mm. don't get back to any kind of baseline that you're at before. When I saw her that morning, she was dependent entirely on her wheelchair. She used a toggle at her chin to move around. She couldn't control her bowel or bladder. Um, I'd been seeing her for about four years. I said, hi, Miss So-and-so, how are you this morning? And she said, wonderful. She said, the roses by my front door are coming out and my grandbaby turned one and I'm going to the first Friday's concert series this weekend. Things are good. And we had our visit. And two patients later, I saw somebody fit the same demographics, but medically speaking, just has some mild occasional low back pain. And I say, hey, Ms. So-and-so, how are you today? And she says, terrible. Mm -hmm. And I said, tell me what's going on. And she said, well, you know, nobody understands about my back and my work doesn't accommodate me and my family doesn't consider it. And I said, has your pain been worse? And she looked at me somewhat surprised and said, well, no, but it could be. Mm. And I went on to help her as best I might. But I thought, what's the fundamental difference? How do I get my kids, for example, to grow up behind door number one? Right. What can I do or give or help patients with? to help them? Like, is it really just how you're born? Is it just a trait like Mm. optimism or eye color? So that was when I dove into the research and failing, finding what I needed, started to do some of my own. Mm, Interesting. So um, 
What were you hoping to find when you went down the road of research? And what did you find that maybe surprised you when you when you found sort of some of the answers to this or even, you know, created your own answers to this? What I was hoping to find is that it isn't a fixed trait. Okay. And I did find that. There is a great deal of evidence to show that resilience is a growth commodity, which has its disadvantages. That means you can grow it, but also certain circumstances will drop it like a rock, no matter mm. how resilient you as a human normally are. In certain circumstances, you will find yours dropping. But so that was maybe a little disappointing. You know, it'd be great if it only went up. <laughs> right, um, right. And we're we're kind of led to believe that. We have an idiom in our society that you probably know, what doesn't kill us. Makes us stronger, yeah. Right. I think that's shenanigans. I think for the most part, what doesn't kill us makes us miserable. And, okay. and that, yes, going through hard things can strengthen you. And for some people it does. But John, I would never ask you to name this person while on your podcast, but I bet you can think of someone in your life who continually has hard times and it never gets any easier for them, mm. right? No matter what it is, it's always a travesty. No matter what the obstacle, it's always enormous. So if just going through hard things was enough, we wouldn't know people like that. It would get easier for everyone. Interesting. Yeah. So that's interesting because I always thought that, and you know, and that's always kind of been a mantra of mine when you're going through a tough time, keep, keep going. going because there's things to learn through that process. And, it, and that's and it absolutely a, true. Yeah. But it takes us, it takes a little bit of intentionality. Waiting for struggles to magically make us stronger is like me hoping believing that losing my car in the parking lot enough times will make me a marathon runner. <laughs> right. Right. And, and that doesn't work. It might make me a little bit more physically fit if I've never done any walking. And now I walk a parking lot every day because I can't find my car, but it's not going to make me a marathoner. I'm going to have to be more intentional if I really want to get noticeably stronger. Okay. So, you know, because I've written about tough times and just in my experiences is that when you go through tough times and you overcome those uh, difficult circumstances, you tend to be better prepared for the next time that comes along and you have a new like high water mark in your life. Like I, I overcame that. This is, this is down here and I can overcome this because I have had experience in overcoming that. Is that is that not necessarily the case or, it, or it, is, it has to be intentional? It is absolutely true that it can be helpful, but there are, and this is one of the things we found, and I say we because I was lucky enough to work with a lab at Tepper School of Business. Uh, we found that there are things you can do to build your resilience more intentionally okay. so that six months from now, you can feel less winded by what you're going through now than you do right now, as opposed to 10 years from now, looking back and saying, okay. oh yeah, I guess I'm stronger than that now. So yes, it helps. Like I would say to my patients, any exercise is good exercise mm -hmm. unless you're injured. So go for a walk, go for a bike ride, do your gardening. I'll take anything because some is better than nothing. But if you really want to make your body more fit, if you really want to be strong enough so that your bones don't succumb to osteoporosis, if you really want to build your cardiovascular health, it's going to take more than the occasional gardening. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. So if, help us just define what resilience is, just so we're like have a common framework. Yes, please. Resilience is the ability to navigate change mm. and come through it with intention and purpose. 
Ah, okay. And not just navigate difficulty or adversity or struggle. Okay. Navigate change. And this mm. is a really important distinction because all change is stressful, even the good stuff, even the stuff yes. we want. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you think of something that you might be willing to share that was a good change that happened to you in the last year? Um, well, my uh, my son went in the military. And Great. Uh, yeah. And so it, it's 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 good because he found something that was uh, that fits fits him very well, fits him to a T. So, uh, yeah. And we were very excited about it because being a, a veteran myself and knowing where he was going. And yeah, that was definitely a good thing. So when you found out where he was going, I'm hoping, and I'm guessing from the look on your face, you had some pride and some happiness and some excitement. Absolutely. But also, at the exact same time, your brain through went through three safety reflexes. It yeah. said, what could we lose? God forbid he's injured or killed. Yeah. And you and I both have a son in the military. So I feel comfortable just stating that up front. Your brain says, what if God forbid? Okay. Mm. Your brain said, can I trust this, right? It has loss is the first safety mechanism. Distrust is the second. So it says, will he have a good commander, someone who will understand him, who will see him and his potential, who will educate him instead of trying to oppress him? You thought, um, can he handle this? Or will he try to get out when you can't, like once you've signed the papers, you're right, in, man. Right. Right. Will he, will he second guess this decision or um, would he hurt his own chances in some way? And then even as you're saying to yourself, look, very few servicemen or servicemen and women are killed in the line and, you know, by percentage. And I bet he has the strength and there are a lot of good commanding officers out there. It's going to be okay. Your brain still said, how long before he can come home? Mm. What time zone will he be in? What branch of the military is going to be the best fit? Like what will be uncomfortable about it? So loss, distrust, and discomfort are these three safety mechanisms that mm. every brain has, even while we're feeling excited, proud, happy, whatever. We still go through those three safety mechanisms, just like your car locks your seatbelt when you hit the brake. Mm. It's just a safety mechanism. Your car doesn't know if you're avoiding an accident or reaching into the back seat. You're going at a certain speed, a safety mechanism. And you can't and you shouldn't turn it off. Mm. But because all change is stressful because our brains are just trying to make sure we're going to be safe, even the good stuff. All change requires resilience, not just the bad stuff. So even good and bad, all change requires resilience. That's something that I've never really considered because usually the good change, you're you're excited and that sort of overcomes any uh, concerns you might have those those three defense mechanisms. Usually, your excitement overplays, but I, but I see as you explained or, it, I all those emotions myself. Yes, yeah. Now you have a lot of experience navigating those emotions, but sometimes the good stuff outweighs it, and you are able to move quickly through the cycle because that's the bad part of the cycle. The good yeah. part of the cycle is all you have to do to turn down your amygdala, which is the part of your brain giving you all that fear response. All you have to turn down is ask yourself one question. What choices do I have? Mm. Not what choices does your son have? What choices do you have? So you think, okay, I could give him some advice. I could put out some feelers to see what a CEO is going to be like. I could just remind myself of what I went through and how valuable it was and keep my mouth shut. I, right? <laughs> I have choices. You choose one or more of those to move forward with. That's engagement. 
And that allows reunification, not necessarily reunification with your son or the Navy or your wife, but reunification with your own intention and purpose. What kind of a dad do I want to be to a son in the military? So that's resilience. It's navigating that change with intention and purpose. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. So you're so as your brain, I don't know, <laughs> well, it's the best way to describe this, but as you as you have intention, right? Uh, as you make a decision, you make those choices and you decide your brain sort of like rests easy with this is the new path, right? Is that it what you're really saying? turns the amygdala from a 10 out of 10 to like a five out of 10? You don't okay. actually stop feeling the potential loss, distrust and discomfort. But when you and, and you don't even have to know what your choices are simply by asking yourself, what choices do I have? You turn on your prefrontal ventromedial cortex and say, Okay, I'm going to start thinking. And the act of thinking, just like the act of breathing, quiets the amygdala, doesn't silence mm -hmm. it, but it quiets it. And that allows you to move forward more rationally. So you have a ton of practice at this because of your leadership experience and your military experience. You've done this many, many times. And that's why all of those experiences that we've had build our change confidence. We cannot make our brains love change. Even if you're a person like I was a kid who I loved a good fire drill in school. I loved a good <laughs> assembly. Anything that changed the routine made me happy. That's pretty unusual in kids. So some people will say to me, oh, no, Dr. G, I love change. And I say, you probably do love the cortisol feeling that you get from change, but your brain still mistrusts change. Mm. You're just usually faster at clicking through to get to choice and quiet the rest of it. You have practice at that. You have change confidence and competence. When I work with companies, I never promise to make people change welcoming or change ready and make them change competent mm. because then they know, hey, yeah, we may hate this, but we know how to do it. And when we know how to do something, it's less overwhelming. That that makes a lot of sense. And and, and I kind of now I'm thinking about it from a leadership standpoint. Now, change is sort of inevitable in companies. We're always got a new program, got a new division, got a new product. Everything's changing. You know, we always say the only thing constant is change in 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 business. And uh, if you so didn't have any change, that's when a leader can go on vacation. <laughs> right. Right. And, and but it's always changing. It always has. I did, you know, I've you know been doing it for a long time and it's always been um it's always been a challenge because we're always doing something different. And um, so how can the lack of employee resilience, so when they don't have that ability to deal with change, how does that hurt companies essentially? The opposite of change competence is change resistance. Mm. So what leaders will find familiar is they announce a change or explore a change. We're exploring the possibility of changing our payroll. Oh, yeah. And they hear all this loss and distrust and discomfort out loud. They're used to thinking, man, those people just throw up obstacles in the way like they make up obstacles. They're not even just pointing out things that might really be a problem. It's like they're they're grasping at straws, trying to come up with reasons I shouldn't do this. I worked with a company recently. They I had done some work with them a few years previous, and they called me to say, hey, Dr. G, we need your help because we did what everybody says to do. We surveyed all of our folks. And coming out of the pandemic and back into the workplace, and we found that one of the biggest irritants, 96% of their employees complained about the payroll system. So mm. they said, we're going to be responsive. We're going to fix that. Yeah. So, yeah. And they agreed, too. Like, the bulk of the leadership team was like, 
yeah, that is an irritant. We could fix that. Let's. It's worth the investment in our people. Usually changing your payroll system, it doesn't improve your bottom line, right? It may a little bit here and there. I know there's some HR people out there being like, no, no, it could. But in general, if yours is working okay, you're doing this for employee engagement, maybe retention, maybe to make your tax season easier. But really, it's it's often an unbudgeted expense, right? It's not going to easily balance out with sales and productivity. But they said it's the right thing to do. Everybody, really, almost every single person wants it. They researched, they narrowed it down to three, senior leadership team met, they picked one, they um, you know, they got ready to implement it, and they announced it, and they expected a parade from their employees. And what they got was lost distrust and discomfort. Yes. And they were kind of mad and really baffled. I mean, genuinely baffled. Like, And they said in the rollout, you asked for this. Yeah. We listened. Yeah. Here it is. And what they forgot is that even change we want is stressful, especially mm-hmm. when you're talking about how people get paid. So you can see how that really cut to people's basic needs and fears and things like that. But beyond that, all change is stressful. One of the biggest mistakes leaders make around change is that they announce a change and when they receive pushback, they believe either that that pushback is a referendum on their leadership, which it is not, or it's a referendum on their employee's character, which Mm. it is not. It's not that they are lazy, obstinate, stubborn, difficult, quiet quitting. It's their brain. Here's the analogy I often use with leadership teams and groups of CEOs that I work with. John, you have kids. You've brought your kids at some point for a well child check to the doctor's office. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I want you to picture you bring your son. He's six. You bring him to see me for his well child check. We sit him up on my table. We're all talking. I listen with my stethoscope. And at some point, I pull out my reflex hammer and I tap his knee. What happens? Usually his, his leg should shoot up if everything's working right. Right. If it, if he's healthy, his yeah. leg kicks. Now, if I stand right in front of him while I tap his knee, I'm going to get kicked. Yeah? Yeah. Do you say to your son, that's disrespectful. Don't kick the doctor. <laughs> no. <laughs> or do you quietly think, she's kind of a moron. Why'd she stand right in front of him? Mm. It's a reflex. It would be mean to yell at your son for doing something that is a deep tendon reflex. He genuinely couldn't stop himself if he wanted to. In the exact same way, I say to leaders who announce change and hear loss, distrust, discomfort, stand to the side. It's a reflex. Mm. It's not a referendum on your leadership and it doesn't speak to their character. It does speak to their skills. Mm. And here's the great news about resilience. There are eight skills that make up this thing that we define as our ability to navigate change. We can learn skills. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Leadership skills are like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them. Best-selling leadership author John S. Rennie knows this. That's why he's written a new book called You Have the Watch. It's a guided journal for leaders designed to take you through an entire year of leadership training. By the end of the year, you will master 50 of the most important leadership skills. If you want to have a greater impact on the results and people in your organization, go to youhavethewatch.com and pick up your copy today. 
This podcast is brought to you by Jeremy Clevenger Fitness. As a high-performing leader, you know that leadership isn't about telling people what to do. It's about leading by example. And for most people, the one area they are lacking when it comes to leading by example is their health and fitness. By improving your health and fitness, every other area of your life improves. But how do you get and stay fit as a busy leader? Well, you do what you've always done. You hire the best person for the job. Now, don't struggle on your own. Put Jeremy Clevenger on your team. Jeremy will work with you to help take your physique, mindset, nutritional habits, and more to the next level with his step-by-step, all-inclusive coaching program. Now, I've worked with Jeremy for the past year, and I'm in the best shape of my life. So if you want to step up your game reach out to Jeremy at jeremyclevengerfitness.com to find out more and get your initial consultation scheduled with him today. This episode is brought to you by the Fraternity of Excellence. The Fraternity of Excellence is an online and real-world community for men who are looking to improve in all areas of their lives. The men of FOE are working together to become better husbands, fathers, and leaders at work and in their communities. They live by a simple philosophy, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, I've been a member for more than three years, and for me, I finally found a brotherhood of men that I was missing from my time in the military. Now, I love being around guys who are dedicated to becoming a better version of themselves. So if you're interested in becoming a man of excellence as well, go to fraternityofexcellence.com, or you can reach out directly to me to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So as, as you know, leaders who are listening into this and they're all nodding their heads because I, I know I am because I've actually rolled out a payroll system where people were essentially had a chance to make a lot more money. And uh, I but was, they were real mad about it, weren't they? <laughs> I was surprised at some of the senior employees who were really mad at it. And I still to this day can't figure out why. But now you just told me why. <laughs> but uh, it's very interesting just because it's it's change. It's something different from what they were used to. And I think even though they wanted it, 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 it and even it was a benefit to them, it was change. So how do we. So if we're going to about, be going about change and the leaders listening into this and they're they're all saying, yeah, I'm going to be doing this major shift here. So how can we best prepare our employees and ourselves to deal with the with, with the challenges of, of change management? How do we build resilience in our employees and, and ourselves as leaders as we go embark in these, you know, inevitable changes we're going to be having in business? So there's. There are a couple of simple answers. There's also a more complex answer, which is different people have different change navigation styles and different skill sets in this. So that's why I developed the program I use where I do a change resistance exam to figure okay. out why the pushback that's happening is happening. And then you can figure out which strategies, which leadership strategies to use to build the skills you need so that you can announce change knowing that there will be those reactions, those reflexes, but also having the confidence that people know how to move through it, that it isn't a referendum on your leadership and you know what strategies to call on. But I, the, the most simple, although not easy, simple strategy that I can recommend that works the vast majority of the time at first is empathy. 
One of the biggest lies we have in our society, in my opinion, is the belief that if you're a decent person, expressing empathy comes easily to you. That's shenanigans. Mm. There are seven cognitive barriers to effectively expressing empathy. And leaders have most of them because the largest (laughs) involves the more connected you are to the person or the outcome of the situation, the harder it is to effectively express empathy about it because Mm -hmm. you are enmeshed in that situation. The reason that our brains have this reaction to change, and I'm explaining this because it becomes much easier to empathize. Our brains have a million functions, but one job, and that job is to keep us alive. The good news is we are currently alive. The bad news is our brain evaluates every possible change through the lens of, could this be the thing that kills us? And that thing could be a new payroll system where I won't get the money I need and I won't make my rent and we will be homeless and my family will die to we won the lottery. That sounds like a really big change. That could be dangerous. I've heard of that really messing people up. Two, I picked up my phone to send a text and it's updating the operating system. Could I die? Your Mm. brain is really binary in that way. It just, every change, it's like, oh, that sounds awesome, but could we die though? (laughs) And so it has to go through that. And as a leader, when you understand that this is simply like the reflex to breathe, Mm. you have to breathe to stay alive, you stop being offended by it. And it's much easier to have empathy. So if, if you and I had had this conversation before your new payroll system, you'd have still chosen it. You'd have still rolled it out. And when people were mad, you'd have been like, yeah, yeah, I get it. You're angry. I hear that. Mm. We forget as leaders that expressing empathy doesn't mean endorsing the decisions or the behaviors that come out of the emotion. We can express empathy and, not but, and have rules about behavior and expectations. We can do both. We do it with our kids. We expect our kids to feel frustrated and not hit their sibling. We want them to be able to have their emotion and separate that out from their behavior. So we have to do it too. We -hmm. say, I see that you're mad at your brother and we don't hit in this family, right? And so as leaders, we can do the same. We can say, yeah, I hear that you're angry. I hear that a new payroll system is not the stressor you wanted October 1st. I get that. That's your really busy season in your department, or that's the third change we've rolled out in as many months that affects you. Technology is something that you consider an Achilles heel. I hear all that. That's hard. Oh, yeah, yeah. we're totally still doing it. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, interesting you say that because normally I'm a pretty empathetic leader and and uh, I try to be, but I, in, in this particular case, it was a situ- situation where it was all upside, and I was shocked at the at the negative reactions from, especially from one employee who who had the ear of a lot of other employees. I was really shocked at his behavior through the whole thing, and I was less than empathetic towards his reaction to that change. Well, it sounds like instead of being a net promoter, he became a net detractor. Yes, and, absolutely. Yeah. And you have you have standards and expectations around that. So if he had expressed it only to you, you might have had a lot easier time with empathy, right. but you were having trouble separating your frustration with his net detractor from his frustration about the Yeah, absolutely. But one of the big cognitive barriers that especially entrepreneurs have, um have I frozen on you? You're good now. 
Okay, sorry. One of the big, uh, I mentioned these seven cognitive barriers to expressing empathy. A big one that that entrepreneurs have is we disagree with the emotion. There's mm-hmm. nothing to be upset about here. You yes. should be happy. You should yes. be excited. Well, telling somebody how they should feel is not only disrespectful, it's entirely ineffective. Yeah. So don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because it's probably the one area where I'm not I'm not empathetic is when I, when I get a strange emotion from somebody, I'm like, like you said, you should be happy. Right. Right. So, but I, that's a problem I probably have and I got to work, work on that. So. (laughs) But when you understand that there are these seven cognitive barriers and it's not that you're not a good person and it's not that you don't value empathy in your Mm -hmm. leadership, you do. It's just like saying, um, Hey John, you'll run faster if your shoe isn't tied to your other shoe and you untie them. You're like, Oh yeah, that is easier. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, I think I admit that makes a lot of sense. I keep going back to your two patients, one with severe problems with a positive outlook on life and one with, you know, injuries being less and, and a negative outlook towards life. Is there a way for leaders to develop that, um, I don't know, that attitude? I don't know what the right word is, but that 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 ability in in um in their employees to be able to deal with change better and with the right uh emotions uh is that something that you could do with training development uh how does how, is there a mechanism for that i'm going to stay away from saying that there are right emotions because your emotions are yours right. I, say, I say this to my kids a lot i say your emotions are entirely yours your behaviors are mine <laughs> that's true <laughs> right now as a leader you wouldn't put it quite that way but i'm not gonna t- I, I don't need to be in the business of telling people what the right emotions are to have mm. but i will tell them what useful strategies are and so there are there are four strategies that i can use to help you be more resilient but there are eight skills that you can build to make you more resilient mm. i can't okay. build those in you I can lay them out for you. I can offer you the resource. I can bring in the consultant who can help you see it differently. Because if I tell you that's not necessarily all that useful because we know each other really well or because you've seen how I navigate change and it's not how you would want to navigate change, our brains, and this is why consultants get to work, our brains get take in big new ideas better from people we don't know well. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, right. I see that so, with, my, with my children as they've gotten to be adults. They listen to other adults better than they listen to their own father. So. And they bring you things that you're like, right, that is what I have been saying. And they're like, what? No. Yeah. Anyway, so so you might bring in someone else to say it. But basically, their resilience, the ability to navigate change with intention and purpose involves eight skills. So when I think about those two women in particular, both of whom I know knew pretty well as their family doctor, which isn't the same as knowing them, you know, in the community, I can tell you that the first woman for sure that I had seen was excellent at building connections. That's one of the skills. Mm. Excellent at managing discomfort. That's another one of the skills. Really phenomenal at opening to different possibilities. One of the real big obstacles to resilience is when you think there's only one possible path to get Mm. to the future you want. Right. So there are these eight skills. And even just as her doctor, I could see that she was great at several of them. And I could see that the other patient struggled with a bunch, but we all have our own profile. And one of the things I really want to caution leaders about, although you will screen for these in a good interview process, 
different situations drop will poke a hole in the bottom of our resilience bucket. I was working with a company and I had done extensive work with this, their senior leadership team. And about six months later, the CEO called me and he said, hey, so-and-so, a woman on his senior leadership team that I had gotten to know pretty well, has always been really pretty resilient. And she has absolutely dropped the ball several mm. times. Can you facilitate a conversation? So what had happened is that one member of their team their leadership team had had to take a leave of absence. His mom had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. It was very bad. He really needed to step back. Everybody else on the team, including this woman, was like, 100%, we will take on your obligations. We will move things around to cover for you as long as you need. Go, don't even check your email. And this woman who normally picked up slack for people all the time was not only not stepping up where she had said she would for his obligations, she was losing track of her own responsibilities too. We had a conversation and in that conversation, what came out is that his mom was dying of what her mom died of. Mm. So it does not matter how many resilient skills she had had, she herself was blindsided by her loss of resilience. Kind of like the shoes tied together analogy, as soon as she named it and she was able to use her skills, her connections and her setting boundaries and her managing discomfort and her setting goals and all that, because she knew what the problem was, things improved very quickly. Mm. And she was able to step up and she felt tons better and things went fine. But until she knew what the problem was, she couldn't figure out why she saw it. She had insight. She saw she was not doing what she needed to do, even her usual stuff, but she couldn't figure out why. Mm-hmm. So leaders need to understand that no matter how great a job you've done screening your candidates or figuring out who to promote and advance, surprising moments happen. And just like any growth commodity, it can have a fall as well as a growth. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And I can see that in my own life, which I would say I'm very typically a very resilient person uh, and able to navigate change fairly well. But there are some things when you don't see when I can't see a clear path to the future and it just seems like every turn is a is a dead end. That's when I lose it. Like it's like I'm I'm starting to lose my faith in, you know, this this change. And I, and I know so I can definitely sense where there where there are people who are very resilient can suddenly have a like they said the bottom falls out, and it's because of one one particular thing that's just there's a barrier there, and we have to watch out for that as leaders when we have even even our most resilient employees are going to have times when they can't step through to the next to the next level. I always encourage leaders that when someone is surprising you, certainly in a bad way, but also sometimes in a good way. For example, you have an employee who is great at getting their work done, but not terribly communicative, even though you've asked. And then suddenly they're emailing you about a project every hour. So they're surprising you. It's not necessarily bad. It's maybe what you asked them for, but you're still surprised. Try to tie that surprise to curiosity. What's Mm -hmm. going on here that I don't know about? So when they're frustrating you or surprising you, doesn't matter. Try to tie that to curiosity, not accusation, not diagnosis, just curiosity. That's fantastic. Well, Deborah, this has been really good. There's so many good nuggets that you've given us, and and we have just begun to scratch the surface about this subject. And I want do want to encourage leaders who are listening in is to pick up this book. It's called From Stress to Resilient. You're going to get a lot more details in there about how to deal with this, how to navigate it. These the, these eight uh, what do you call them? Skill sets? Is that the right? Yeah, these eight, these eight resilient skills. Yeah, and 
different ones are helpful in different situations. So the way I've set up the book, you're going to decide which one you focus on based on your expertise in you and in the change that you're navigating. That's fantastic. So I just encourage you guys to to find that resource, get it, especially if you're dealing with a lot of changes in your in your business, in your in your department, in your group. Uh, this is what you want to do to be able to help your employees get through these changes in the best way possible. So, Deborah, how can people find out more about you, your company, what you offer, and also um, this book, this new book? The first thing I'd like to say is if you are a leader who knows that you have a change coming up that you're nervous about. Um, you're moving physical plants or you are offering a new product or you're bringing in a new system, I know that you don't have resilience and change navigation as a line in your budget, but we can really improve the adoption of that new experience and navigation of that change with a little bit of prevention. It really Mm -hmm. is worth a pound of cure. So please be in touch. Um, (laughs) And the easiest way to do that is through my website, which is askdrg.com. But if you're particularly interested in my book, I wanted people to see that this is a prescription. So I created a free tool that you can find online where you're going to tell me what change you're navigating and answer a few questions. And we're going to give you a couple of strategies you could try right now. That's called stressedtoresilient.com. Okay. And we'll go ahead and put that in the uh, the link to that in the show notes. And that's fantastic. Great resource uh, for you if you're navigating a change uh, coming up. This is a great place to go and at least get started. And uh, and hopefully through this discussion, you realize there's a lot more to change than we all realize. So, uh, Deborah, thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing all this research, giving us a, a different perspective about uh, change management and all the things that we have to look out for. So thank you for coming on the show and sharing all this information. Thank you very much for the conversation. This was fantastic. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying, take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. Welcome to Tuning In to Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning In to Sound Wellbeing today. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.